Father in heaven, I thank you that you've given to us the opportunity to once again gather together to consider your word. And Lord, as we have heard so much today, so much practical um, testimony of your power, of how we can live um, lives united with you, abiding in you, I just pray that even tonight that your spirit would still speak to our hearts, that you would that you would just give us clear minds and that you would, you would show us something that will be useful and help us in our heavenward journey. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I kept thinking about, um, about this topic and there was part of me that said, you know, um, so much of this has already been talked about, you know, just sort of um, along the way when we talk about um, surrender and what that means through the personal testimonies that have been shared. We've already heard about it. But, you know, in some ways, I think um, I have to allow the Holy Spirit to do its work. And when the Holy Spirit has, has shared similar burdens with me and others, I think I need to go ahead and follow that, uh, that vein. And so I'm going to be talking tonight on what I call giving up and giving all. We we're going to make this, this um, shorter because we have a question and answer period to follow. So I'm going to try to be as, uh, as succinct as possible. But um, it, it really, I like simplifying the Christian life. I really do. I think sometimes, you know, as a kid, I, I, I thought I, there's just so much for me to know. And, and it was overwhelming at times. And I find other people have, have a similar uh, sensation of just what, where do I start? And um, so I just like to, to make it as simple as possible. Last night we talked about two things we need to know in order to be saved, knowing yourself and knowing Jesus. And um, I think it's, it's, I really do believe it's that simple. Now I think that there's a lot along the way that he's going to teach us, but those are the two things that he needs to teach us so that we can make a good decision. And when we know ourselves and when we know Jesus, there's a decision we have to make. And that's what I call surrender. And if I could boil down the, our part of the Christian life to one word, um, and, and please don't, I'm not trying to oversimplify, I'm not trying to, to overgeneralize, but if I had to just say one word of what, what my part in the Christian walk is, I would use the word surrender. I would just say surrender. So we're going to look at surrender from two perspectives tonight, giving up and giving all. You know, the story is told of um, Lord Nelson, the famous um, British admiral. And uh, Lord Nelson had just won a splendid victory at sea, and the uh, French admiral who he had overpowered was surrendering. They were walking together to meet each other on the deck of the ship, and the admiral was, um, the, the French admiral was dressed in all of his regalia, and he approaches Nelson to surrender. Now you understand those dress uniforms and how they are with the, well, they actually have a weapon too, don't they? They had a sword hanging by their side. And, and as this French admiral approached Lord Nelson, um, his sword was swinging by his side and the admiral put out his hand to shake the hand of the British commander. Lord Nelson stepped back and he said, your sword first, please. You see, there's there are times when I think that we would like to be able to surrender on our own terms. We want our own way. You know, we want the, we want the peace that forgiveness can bring. We want the relationship with God, but we really want it on our own terms. We, we might even want it as, with as little humbling of ourselves as possible. And just like the uh, leper Naaman 
who suggested he had alternate means to cure leprosy. There were better rivers in Damascus, right? Um, and, and, um, and he didn't want to humble himself to the one way that God had provided for him to be cleansed. We, too, have that same resistance to submitting to God's way of healing our, 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 our leprosy, of cleansing our sin problems. So there's some who, who believe that they can come to Jesus on their own terms. They want a customized personal definition of surrender that allows them to retain that which they want and give up what they don't want. Well, I'll give this. It's almost like a negotiation with God. But surrender is surrender. And the French admiral had to realize he lost and he was not going to be trusted to shake Nelson's hand without first giving up his weapon, completely helpless and given into the, uh, the superior's hand. So some people might say, just let me be religious. Hey, at least I'm going to church. I'll do this and so, but not such and such. And I believe that surrender is a very, very important thing for us to understand. And to be saved, I don't believe that we have to be intellectual or theological. We only need to experience what is always within the reach of every single one of us. And that's to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? There are a number of reasons why I think that this is confusing. We'll look at, or at least um, it's, we, we have a hard time doing it. We'll look at a number of, of, uh, of those here in the few minutes we have together. But Jeremiah chapter 29, 13 has come to, bring a new, uh, to take on new meaning to me as I, have, um, as I have studied it. I used to think that Jesus was playing some sort of celestial hide-and-seek, that in order to find salvation, in order to find Jesus, we would have to... F- we would have to look really, really hard. And Jeremiah 29, 13 seemed to say that. It says, if you seek me, if you will seek me and find me, I'm sorry, it says, and you will seek me and find me when you do what? Search for me with all of your heart. So this is, a, this, is this game of hide and seek that God was playing with us. We've got to look really, really hard to find him. But as I studied the Bible more and as I studied what God's plan is for me more, and I, I, I see how Jesus says, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. As I see that God is working in our lives before we even realize He's working there, even when we don't want Him to be working there, He's working in our lives. As I understand that God who, who, de- who delivered up His own Son for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? As I realize what God's investment is in this salvation process, it doesn't make sense to me that He's going to make it hard for us that he's going to make it difficult for us to find it, you know? That he's going to be like, well, you know, find me if you can. I'm going to be hiding out here somewhere. This searching for me with all of your heart, and, and then it dawned on me. I hope I'm not twisting the scripture here, but this is how I've come to understand this passage. The only way we find him is when we're willing to surrender all of our heart. That's the all of our heart that is going to bring about guaranteed a promise here you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all of my all of your heart in other words i'm willing to put everything on the altar i'm willing to to surrender everything to jesus christ all that is needed is an unreserved surrender now i my heart has been has thrilled as i've listened to um to what has been shared today about 
prayer and the study of God's Word. I've been, in, I've been personally convicted. I need to spend more, um, more intentional time in prayer and in praise and in study. And I've been blessed by this time together. I've also learned that if I'm not careful, I could start thinking that it's what I do that is going to give me a relationship with God. Hear me out on this. I, I, know, I, know, I hope this is stated very carefully. If I'm not careful, I might start to look at it almost like a sacrament. I need to study my Bible. I need to pray. And that's going to give me a relationship with God. And I've even caught myself. I've even caught myself. Maybe, maybe you understand what I'm talking about. Um, sometimes I just need to read the book of Romans and the book Steps to Christ all over again um, and remind myself because we naturally tend to try to earn our salvation. And I catch myself doing something like this. I've blown it today, you know. I've said something. I've, I've, felt, I've, I've, I've disappointed. I've hurt. I've whatever. I know that I've not been abiding in Christ. I've caught myself subconsciously thinking, well, you know, tomorrow I'm going to have better devotions. Tomorrow I'll start over and I'll make it right. And my friends, I just want to say something the Lord has taught me. Um, I, I believe tomorrow I need to do that, and, but I don't need to wait until tomorrow to be right with Jesus. I don't need to, be wait, to wait until I have longer devotions or better prayer time to be right with Jesus. Right now, I go to Him just as I am, and I surrender my life and my sin and my heart again to Him. You know, we really don't have tomorrow promised to us, do we? Today, when we hear his, his voice speaking to us, we should respond. And so, surrender has, has, has taken a, a, on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day um, importance for me in my walk with my Lord. Now, it's, it's safe to say, I think, that the Christian experience is not first and foremost an intellectual ascent. It's a matter of the heart. Who has our hearts? That's really what matters and surrender is how we, we decide who has our heart. Now, what are the obstacles to surrender? Let's just go these, through these very briefly. We won't take much time to talk about them. But one of the obstacles that we could talk about that would be an obstacle to surrender is the obstacle of fear. Sometimes we're afraid of what will happen if we surrender. We're afraid that if we surrender, God's going to do something crazy with us. We'll become one of those religious fanatics. As young people, I think we think that sometimes. We're afraid that God's going to do something that we don't want from our lives, in our lives, and there's, there's, there's this fear that, that, uh, that, um, that there's going to be a disappointment in, 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 um, in, the, in the journey, and, and, and frankly, I think this is overcome as we learn to not only more about ourselves, but we learn more about God, right? The more we know about God, the more we become confident that God doesn't lead us otherwise than we would choose to be led if we could know the end from the beginning and discern the, the glory of the purpose that He has for our lives. We also, I think, sometimes have pride that stands in our way. When I'm convicted that I need to go and I need to make something right, I need to admit my fault. If we, Jane and I have had a disagreement, of course, it's always my fault. I mean, it's usually my fault. <laughs> um, but if Jane and I have to have, to, have made a disagreement and and I'm convicted I need to go and make it right. My pride sometimes is the obstacle that stands in the way of that surrender. The Lord has told me, you need to give this up. You need to surrender this. And, and I know that. And this is biblical. And this is, um, it's not just an impression. The devil's not telling me this, I'm pretty sure. 
but at the same time, my pride stands in the way. And by the way, sometimes it's not our spouse. You know, sometimes it's somebody that maybe it's our supervisor or maybe it's a, I remember when I was a kid, I had this experience where, um, oh, I had several of these experiences. Um, but I, I, one day I was, I was playing in my neighbor's house and um, we were playing like, I don't remember, I think it was either cowboys and Indians or cops and robbers. And um, now you have to understand, I don't think my parents really approve of, of that anyway. I mean, they let us play a lot. Um, you know, out in our place, but um, these were, it was a good Christian family. But the thing was, I ran through this, I ran through the kitchen or the dining room or something with, with a toy gun. And the lady of the house, she said to me, Chester, I must have been eight years old, nine years old. She said, Chester, does your mom let you play with guns? And I said, yes. <laughs> and immediately I knew I had told a lie. And... Um, I didn't feel good about that. You know what? A child's conscience is so tender. And Jesus said, except we, be, we become as little children, right? Oh, I wish I want a conscience tender. Oh, that bothered me. Now, I rationalized. I remember I, I'd be praying, and I'd think, think about that, that time, and I'd I knew I hadn't told a lie. Well, I had told a lie, but I, I, I rationalized it this way. One time we had water guns or something, and my parents let us play with these little water guns. And so I said, well, they let us play with those, so, you know. <laughs> but the, in the back of my mind was this fear that if I were to try to make that right, they, she, Mrs. Steed, would think less of me. You ever felt that fear? Yeah. Like going to apologize? Oh, they're going to think you're such a terrible person. This is one of the most illogical, ill-founded fears. It is. But the devil wraps, wraps us in a knot and stands us on our ears sometimes. It just doesn't make sense. But, you know, we're afraid. Why are we afraid? And um, uh, a number of times this happened to me, and, and I'll be honest with you, I struggled with that. This was a barrier to my... My, uh, my growth for some time until finally I decided, you know, I, I, I argued with God. I said, God, it's a small thing. And then I sort of felt like, well, if it's a small thing, I might as well just get o- over with, you know. If it's such a small thing, why do I keep just getting hung up on this? When I'm praying, I keep thinking of it. And so finally I wrote her a letter. I must have, it was probably a year or so later. This was in the back of my mind, you know. <laughs> I wrote her a letter and I said, you know, I lied. <laughs> I'm sorry. And she was a Baptist, nice Christian lady. And you think she thought less of me because of that? No. In fact, she, next time she saw me, she said, that was the nicest thing you did. And I'm really glad that you got that out of, you know, out of the way and, <laughs> and you're forgiven, you know. And, and she actually, I'm sure, probably thought that I was... Um, she probably had greater respect for me and my family because I was willing to say I messed up. But sometimes we're afraid of surrendering. We're, our pride is in the way. And um, sometimes it's our ambition, what we want to do in life. I'll go ahead and share with you briefly um, some of my experience as a, as a teenager. I shared with you a little bit about how in my senior year of high school I, I had a, a reconversion experience. And... and um, I really had no intention. I come from a, a family of health professionals. I was born in Loma Linda. Uh, my dad was uh, in the School of Dentistry there when I was born. My mom's a dietitian. She 
um, taught dietetics and was food service director for the university and hospital and and um, I always just thought that I was going to become a professional. I just I don't, I don't know. I mean, they never told me that. I mean, they weren't like like you know telling me you need to be a doctor. They, my parents always told me you need to be what God calls you to be. And um, but I just I always admired doctors. Um, I thought that all of my all of our my my parents' friends that were physicians, most of them, many of them, had been missionaries. And um, they had traveled a lot, and they just had this wealth of knowledge and experience. And I thought doctors just learn, they just study for so long. And then my dad was in school for 23 years himself, you know, master's degrees in public health. And, and, um, and I, I thought, you know, I just want to be, I just want to, I just want to, I had this Greek sort of thirst for knowledge for the sake of knowledge, and I just want to. So I, I thought I was going to be a doctor. And, and starting when I was about 14, I'll, I'll come back to this story in just a little bit. Um, Starting when I was about 14, I started having the conviction God was calling me to ministry. And I didn't like that conviction. I really didn't. And um, I, sort of, I sort of resisted it. It may have been part of what sort of came in between me and the Lord. And um, I, I sort of rationalized. I said, well, I'm going to be a missionary doctor. That's ministry, right? And I even found in the spirit of prophecy that the consecrated minister, a consecrated physician, has 10 times more influence than the gospel minister. And I said, see, I'm going to be a, a, a medical missionary and I can do uh, you know ministry as well as medicine and and um, and uh, in the back of my mind there was another reason because I, I thought you know if I become a pastor I'm never going to be able to travel because pastors you know they, they first of all they don't they don't have much reason to travel I mean they're supposed to be at church like 50 weeks out of the year or something you know and so and and they might have not have the finances to travel and all my you know I knew you know I just I just was enamored by these missionaries that had you know come back on furlough and cycled through the Alps or whatever and I thought you know going to Europe that would just be unbelievable you know and um, maybe it's my pride maybe it's my ambition but I was afraid that if I surrendered this to Jesus that he wouldn't I wouldn't be happy doing what he called me to do and um, as I as I continued to, um, well, after my reconversion experience, um, make a long story short, I had um, had some some friends killed in a plane crash that summer, and um, it really sort of shook me up. And um, you know, I was growing in, in my walk with the Lord again, and once again, I had this strong conviction that I needed to go into the ministry, not into medicine. And I had everything lined up. I had my scholarships lined up. I had my university lined up. I had everything set. And I finally I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll go study theology for a year. You know, sometimes, isn't God patient with us? Um, um, and at that point, I guess that was what I was comfortable, and you know, I had peace with that, so I, so I said, I'll do that. And, um, but, but again, remember that one of the reasons that I felt like I really wanted to be a doctor was I really had this desire to travel. Even as a kid, I'd take out road atlases and I'd just chart maps, you know, and go dream about going places, road trips across the United States, up to Alaska, Canada, you know, just, I just had this desire. And um, now looking back, I can see that I wouldn't have been happy probably as a physician, at least, you know, um, I, I, um, I don't know. I think my personality, I like more doing more outdoor things and um, seeing sick people every day might be a little hard on me. <laughs> but, but God knows the desires of our hearts. 
So I, I became a, I, I did a, I studied undergraduate um, religion. I um, I went as associate pastor for for a time in southeastern California. I went back to Arkansas where my parents were involved in education. I began working with students in in in, a, in evangelism and and um, sort of as a chaplain and um, taught there for uh, quite a number of years. Um, and in the process of doing the evangelism and, and eventually God started opening doors for me to minister in other, other avenues. And it came to the point where I know for a fact that I traveled, I have traveled far more in my life than I ever would have traveled if I had been involved in, if I had gone to medicine. Um, I, think the, I think I've crossed the Atlantic 110 times. Um, I don't know how many times across the Pacific. Many, many times, you know, all over the world. And, and it's all been doing mi ministry where I see souls saved and lives changed and transformed. And I just think, Lord, you have a sense of humor, don't you? You know, when we surrender things to God, if they're good things, he doesn't take them away from us. He just gives them back to us, refined and sanctified. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. So fear, pride, ambition, selfishness, these are some of the things that uh, prevent us to, from making that entire surrender to Jesus. Procrastination. Let's be really um, quick here. Of ourselves, we are not able to bring the purposes and desires and inclinations into harmony with the will of God. We aren't capable. But if we are, check, the, uh, check out this phrase, if we are willing to be made willing. If we're willing to be made willing, the Savior will accomplish this for us. Isn't that something? Right now I can, and, and you know, you don't, you don't surprise God when you tell Him how it really is. You don't, God never jumps back when you say, Lord, I really don't want to give up this sin. I don't really want to surrender this to you. God doesn't, God isn't aghast. No, He already knows, doesn't He? And so when we say, Lord, I really don't want, I really can't, I'm, I'm not even motivated, I'm putting it off, but make me willing to be made willing, or I'm willing to be made willing. He can change our hearts. It's a miracle. Um, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Acts of the Apostles, page 482. And so this, is, this needs to be my prayer. I'm willing to be made willing. I'm having, I'm having a hard time surrendering this sin or this thing in the past that, that I need to, to give up. Um, or maybe if it's, you know, even it's a good thing. I need to surrender this to you, but I'm having a hard time. Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. Now, in, in my title here, I shared two different components, giving up and giving all. And I think when we talk about surrender, at least this is how I break it down in my mind. I, I hope it's, it's not too complicated. I like to simplify. But surrender, I think, is giving up. And that's, first of all, admitting defeat. It's saying, I can't save myself. It's saying, I'm not doing very well on my own. No matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, even good things, I'm not going to become the man that you want me to be. I need a miracle. I will be lost aside from an absolute miracle of divine grace. That's my only hope is a miracle. And so this is giving up, admitting defeat, the impossibility of being saved on my own. I am a sinner. I have, even if... I could live my life perfectly from here on. I would still not be able to compensate for my sins of the past. I 
have no hope outside of a miracle of Jesus Christ. And that's giving up. And I think it's so important for me to understand that. I have to be reminded on a, on a regular basis. Um, as important as it is for that relationship for me to study the Bible, the Bible study is not what saves me. It's Jesus that saves me. Um, and uh, Jeremiah 13, verse 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. So I cannot change my heart. I can't even of myself want the things of God. It's all, I can't of myself repent. It's all what God can do in me. And um, so I'm willing to be made willing. I'm willing for God to work that work in my life. And, and that's my only hope. The, uh, the other component is giving all. And, you know, we have the story of the rich young ruler. We'll just refer it to it briefly for the sake of time. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and there's something lacking in his heart. It's, it's interesting that in one of the gospel stories, that, that the, the rich young ruler very clearly um, comes right after Jesus has just blessed the children. And this was something very unusual for religious leaders and important people and sought-after personalities to be involved with just spending time with little kids, you know? And, uh, but Jesus loved the children. Children. And Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. And this rich young ruler is watching this. And Desire of Ages makes this clear as well. He was watching, and something was stirred in his heart that he said, This, this man's different. He knew there was something missing in his own life already, and he thought, This man has something that I want. And he came and he said, you know, good master, what, 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 what should I do that I might inherit eternal life? You know the story. And Jesus tells him eventually, he tells him, go and, and sell everything you have and give to the poor. And many times we look at that story and we say, well, what is that? Like, what's wrong with having possessions? I mean, Jesus didn't say sell your extra houses. Jesus didn't say, you know, get rid of your surplus wealth. Jesus said, sell everything you have. And, and we, 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 we scratch our heads and we say, why would Jesus say, get rid of even the good things? And this is very, the, my, my conclusion, you can pray about it and think about it and study it for yourself. And my conclusion is that Jesus requires the surrender of even good things. Let that sink in. Sometimes we focus on the sins. But good things can be idols just as much as evil things can be idols. Now, does that mean that if, if, Jesus, if, if, if this man had followed Jesus' instructions and gone and sold everything, that he would have died a pauper and had no more, um, no more influence or no more wealth? I don't believe so. I really don't. I really believe that God had gifted this man with abilities and talents that sanctified and ennobled and dedicated to the Master's cause would have been would have been useful and a blessing. But he couldn't even begin as long as there was something else on the throne of this man's heart. He had to surrender even the good things. There's nothing wrong with the ambition of being a doctor or whatever it is, but God had to, God has to have the throne of our hearts. Surrender the dearest thing. And you know, a young lady asked me one time, one of my students she said, you know, you talk about surrendering to Jesus. I never thought about it this way before, but she said, how do you surrender? How do you surrender everything? Like, how long of a list would that have to be? I mean, really, when you stop and think about it, it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, how do I know I've surrendered everything? What if I've forgotten something? How do you surrender everything? And the more I thought about it, the more I came to, again, I, I think God tries to make it very simple for us. 
I came to the conclusion that to surrender everything is very, actually very, very simple. It's to surrender the one thing that's dearest to you. The one thing that God is calling for in your life that you're holding on to, that one thing, when you've given that up, at that moment you have surrendered everything. You don't have to have a whole laundry list. You don't have to have all your, your future and your background and, and all your possessions and everything else. What you need to give is what God is calling for in your heart today. And, and friends of mine, I think as in evangelism, we're often very good at teaching people to surrender bad habits. We're, we're, we're good at uh, teaching people to surrender sins and um, false doctrines. But what we, we are not very good at as Adventists is teaching them once they've stopped smoking and working on Sunday and they're not drinking alcohol and they're not doing any of the vices, once they've surrendered those things and we've seen uh, evidence of, of, sur of surrender and conversion because they are willing to surrender those things that are dear, near and dear to them, we don't teach them how to continue surrendering their lives even in the good things that God may call for in their hearts, in their prayer time, in their study time together. Um, really quickly, I'll share a story and then I'll close. Um, when I was about 14, I, I had a, um, I had, a, well, I had always had an interest in horses. And my parents moved out into the country in Arkansas when they, we left Loma Linda. They wanted to do church planting. We, eventually, we had about, we had some land. I think we had about 15 acres maybe at that time or so. And, and um, it, you know, some of it was sort of, it wasn't really fenced well, but it, some of it was cleared. And, and I really wanted a horse. We ended up getting a little Shetland pony, which uh, we outgrew in a few years. You know, when you can drag your feet while you ride, it's probably too small for you. But um, we, um, I finally got my first horse. I was about 14 years old. We, we didn't know much about, I didn't know much about horses, except what I learned from the encyclopedia, you know, and everything else I could read about horses. So um, we bought this horse, and um, we didn't have a, you know, vet check it over or anything. We just found this horse, and she was a big black mare. I mean, just just a big horse, um, not purebred or anything, just a horse. And, and so we, we brought her home and, and had her home. And I mean, my, my horses, or my horse and my pony, um, became my life. I mean, if I could have, I would have slept out there with them. Um, my mom was the great obstacle to that. Um, but any spare moment I had, I wanted to be brushing them or riding them or taking care of them. I, you know, I was just, that was my focus. And to be honest with you, I started, I started getting a little convicted that it was even taking some of my regular Bible study time away because the first thing I wanted to do in the morning was run out and be with the horses or the horse and the pony. And... Um, you know when you have this conviction, but you don't really act upon it? And I'm going to tell you this story. You can take it for what it's worth, but it's, it's my experience, okay? Um, we decided after about a year that, um, that we, uh, we wanted to have another horse. And the easiest way would be to find a stallion, and we'd breed the mare, and then we'd have our own little foal. And... Um, so we talked to some owners, and they said, well, Hot Springs, Arkansas is horse country. It's a thoroughbred racing you know, area and stuff. And so we said, um, they said, well, in order to get bred, you first you have to have what's called a Coggins test, where they, they, they do a blood analysis to look for this disease. It's basically AIDS for horses, equine infectious anemia, and it's, just, it's AIDS. And um, 
So, you know, that's, you have to have that before you, so we got that test. And well, when the vet came out to, t to take the blood, like a day before I was noticing, or maybe it was a day after, I was noticing that underneath my horse, like there's these big old veins popping out, like up underneath the belly. And her udder was sort of swelling. And I thought, that's really weird. So I called the vet. We called the vet. She came, he came back out. I thought maybe the snake bitten, had an infection or something. Um, <laughs> the vet came back out, palpated, and said, you have a colt or a foal in there that's going to be born the next week or so. She's about <laughs> to deliver. So um, we didn't know. We'd had this horse for nine months or ten months or something. Must have gotten bred right before we got her. And um, so here we are. And the little, the little foal is born a few days later, maybe a week later. And um, about that time, the test results come back, and they're positive. Um, the horse had equine infectious anemia. Well, the law requires or allows a second testing um, two weeks later. And if the second test comes back positive as well, verification, you know, different laboratory, whatever. If um, the second test comes back positive, then you have 30 days. And um, the horse has to be disposed of. Or um, it has to be kept 100 yards from any public road or any other equines. Um, well, we didn't have the property fences and all to be able to keep her 100 yards from the road. So she had a test of the second time, came back positive. And um, our vet was, I remember the day, I mean, he knew how important the horses were to me. And, and I was just, you know, I was a kid still. And, um, I still remember he came and when he's giving us the news, he came out and he said, um, he started sniffling. I'm sorry, I'm a very emotional person, so I cry really easily. I, I cry really easily. I'm, I'm, I'm a crybaby. But um, he said, um, oh, this, this hay fever. <laughs> and... Um, but he went to bat for us. He went to the state uh, veterinarian, and they got a special dispensation for us to keep the horse for the next six months because he had a newborn foal. Got farmed our other horse. I think he had two ponies by that time. Um, put him on a neighbor's pasture, and they let us keep him there. And there was a chance, small chance, the foal would somehow not have had any blood direct transmission and would not be sick. And I remember running out in the woods after the vet came with those news and, sorry, it's just a horse, I know, but. <laughs> oh, why, God? But I knew that my horses were an idol. And I knew that God wanted my heart. <laughs> hay fever. Hay fever, yes. Um, so, I mean, I was praying so hard that God would heal my horse. And, um, I mean, we were feeding, I've tried feeding garlic to her and every <laughs> natural remedy, you know. There was no, there was no healing this horse, and so... Six months later, we had, to, we had to get rid of the mother, and the foal, we had, I mean, he, he thought he was a human being because we raised him, and he would walk around. He tried to get in the house all the time. We didn't even keep him, we didn't even keep him in a fence. 
he was like a little puppy dog, ran around the house. And um, he would chase off the neighbor's dogs that came up. You'd see these dogs running full speed, the horse scalloping on behind it. And, um, it's a little annoying sometimes. My grandma would drive up the driveway and, and he would come, he, he thought it was his duty to inspect every car that came. So he'd stand right in the middle of the drive and sniff the hood of her car. She's honking and honking and honking. <laughs> he'd take his time till he approved and let her buy, you know. Um, so he thought he was a human being. We were very attached to this horse as well. We, six months ended and we took the, um, um, we took the, uh, the Coggins test for him and it came back positive. And um, then the vet said again, he studied more and he said, you know, this, this, this test doesn't look for antigens, it looks for antibodies, and so he would have gotten that from the mother's milk. So he got the state to allow us to have another six months, and we tested again, the horse came, the test came back negative. Now, how many years ago would that have been? That horse is still at my parents' house, <laughs> still alive, and uh, still part of the family the only horse we have left. Um, but what I learned from that, there's nothing wrong with horses. Is there? But God asks us to surrender even the good things. And when we, when we surrender good things to God, He doesn't take them away from us. Now they're in the right order, the right priority list in our hearts. Now we can enjoy them better. I tried to I tried to, um, to copy the statement here from the Spirit of Prophecy from Patriarchs and Prophets um, and my computer wasn't cooperating um, just before the, the uh, lecture, but it, it says, would that all who uh, are not willing to make a full surrender to Christ would realize that God has something vastly better for them to offer them than that which they're trying to hold on to. Whenever God asks us to give something up, He has something better to give us in its place. And uh, we need to give up and say, Lord, I can't do it. But we also need to give all and say, Lord, is there anything that's between me and you? It doesn't have to be a sin. It could be something good. But something that God is calling us to surrender to him. Um, there's a story, and it, I found this in one of my old, old books, old Revival and Reformation books. It's from the same Andrew Murray um, sort of a pietist type literature and it actually is, took place here in Pennsylvania and um, the story is told of Maggie um, there's a minister here in Pennsylvania that received a letter from his denomination I don't know what denomination it was but they were speaking of the great need of in, in the west of the United States for missionaries at that time this was the early 1800s it was basically a mission field and and the the denomination was asking that a special sermon be preached and a special offering be collected and literature accompanied the request and so he read the literature and prepared a sermon with with the best of his abilities and that weekend you know he came, the Sunday morning came and he he rose to preach, and he preached his heart out, but somehow the congregation just wasn't very moved by this, by this message or by this appeal. And so he, he went to, uh, to, uh, to take up an offering, and, you know, the banker over there that could easily give a, a, a good offering, he... He, he was sort of yawning and looking at his watch under the cover of his hand. And the, the merchant over there was, was sort of just busy and, and scratching away on his pencil with something. At the end of the, of the sermon, the minister sat down and with a hubby heart, he realized that he really hadn't been able to really connect with his audience. And the, the plate went out and a few people gave in a, a little bit of offering. 
Meanwhile, there in the back row, there was a little girl by the name of Maggie. And Maggie was a girl that was crippled. She was only nine or ten years old, but an accident had taken place which took part of her limbs, and her life was darkened. She sat and watched the children outside playing and couldn't do much of anything until some members in the church took up an offering and they bought Maggie some crutches. With these crutches, Maggie became a ray of sunshine. She was always happy and smiling and loved to go outdoors and hobbling about. Um, everyone loved her because of her sunny ways. And there she was in the last pew sitting all by herself. She's listening to the sermon. She said, oh, I wish I could give something. But I can't. I don't even have a penny. I don't have anything that I can give. And a very soft voice said something inside of her head. There are your crutches. Oh, her crutches. She couldn't give her crutches. Yes, the little voice said, you can. And if you did, there would be somebody who learned about Jesus. His love, it will mean so much when they hear it. You can give your crutches. No. We know the struggle that was going on in Maggie's heart, don't we? We all know that struggle. No, no. Yes, yes. By and by, the victory came to her and she said yes. Her eyes are glistening. And the deacon came down there to, the, to the, her row, and it's just Maggie in the row, and yet politely he passes the, the offering plate, knowing she had, doesn't have any money to put in. And then very awkwardly, Maggie takes her crutches and tries to stack them on top of the offering plate. Well, the, the deacon helps her and holds them there, and then he begins that long walk up the center aisle holding Maggie's crutches on the offering plate. And everybody looked. Everybody knew Maggie. Everybody recognized those crutches. The banker started blowing his nose. It's amazing what you can hide behind a well-timed nose glow, right? The emotions. The merchant started fidgeting with his pencil again. And the minister stood up again and said, Our little friend has given us a wonderful example of sacrifice. Somebody in the congregation said, Look, I want to buy those crutches. I'll give $10, $10 for those crutches. The offering plate was sent back to him, and he gave the $10, and the crutches were sent back to the last pew to Maggie. And then someone said, Let's take the offering again. So here in the early 1800s, when the offering plate was passed again, over $160 was collected for missions to tell other people about Jesus. Little Maggie hobbled out of the church on her crutches, broken in body but not in spirit, and she still had those crutches that she surrendered to Jesus. The $160 was just the return on the investment. There's something in all of our lives I think at any point in our Christian experience, there's always something that God is calling us to surrender. Something that he's saying, I want to make sure your priorities are right, that uh, the life that you're living 
has me on your heart's throne. I don't know what your crutches may be, the good things or maybe even the sins that God's calling for. But all God really needs for us to do is to give up and to give all. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I just ask that we might have this experience. Make us willing to be made willing. We choose to allow you to work in our lives, even in those areas that we're still struggling with. Give us the experience of the perfect peace that comes when we know there's nothing between our soul and our Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.